Well, good morning, Four Corners. I trust that you have experienced God's presence as we have praised His name, as we have prayed to Him and confessed our sins. And let me just encourage us all to not miss the call to worship. Uh, let's kind of begin our service by adoring God. That's, that's the reason we, we order the service the way we do, is we start with the Lord. So uh, let's begin there and confess our sins in light of his holiness, and from there begin to celebrate his, his grace, his mercy towards us, and prepare our hearts for receiving his word. If you guys could just tone those lights down just a little bit, if you don't mind. I want to begin by just making a, a little comment about commentaries. Uh, one of the things that is, is really a joy as, as a preacher, as a pastor, is in sermon preparation, being able to, to read various, numerous commentaries on a particular text. In fact, I was reading this past week, one, one of the commentaries that I consulted was John Calvin's, and it's interesting to see even him in the 1500s there saying, well, some commentators say and some interpreters say, and sort of going back, and you can see this even in the church fathers. Augustine or Chrysostom, Ambrose, Jerome, these guys as they're, as they're consulting these commentaries. And one of the things I appreciate about the women's ministry and the, the various studies that they've been doing is that they emphasize the importance of first studying the text yourself. And so you don't race to the commentaries. You, you spend time with the text, studying it yourself, beginning to draw your own conclusions. And then from there, you begin to sort of build on what has, has already been said in, for centuries and centuries as we really are standing on the, the shoulders of giants, people who for many years have, have interpreted God's word. Well, one of the commentaries that I find uh, particularly helpful when uh, he has written those on the, the passage I'm preaching is those by the church father, John Chrysostom. He was a, a well-known preacher. And in fact, these aren't really commentaries. They're homilies. They're, they're basically transcriptions of his sermons that were preached that are then used uh, or written down and, and transcribed so people later on can consult them and see how he came at the text. And one of the things that you will see as you look at the commentaries of Chrysostom is he begins many of his sermons by using the language of a banquet feast. So as he's preaching to God's people, he begins to lay out for them an idea that, that in the preaching of the word of God, there, there's a kind of preparing of a table, uh, biblical riches for the soul. And so it's the imagery of, of putting out God's word really as a feast that the people of God then come and feed upon. And so I think it's just such a fitting way to think about receiving preaching, that when the word of God is preached in human weakness and frailty always, that nonetheless God's word is held out for people who can then feed on that word. So let's feed this morning on God's word. God's word will nourish our souls and equip us for every good work, make us complete, inwardly complete, in stability of soul, and outwardly complete in gospel productivity. So let's ask the Lord for that, and let's begin to move towards this, this study of his word. So we've been working our way through the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So if you will, please turn with me there. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're at today. 
Genesis chapter 2. And several weeks ago, we reached the culmination of God's works in the six days of creation. That was back in chapter 1. So at the end of chapter 1, we read in verses 26 to 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both man and woman, male and female, made in God's image. How? How? Is one of the questions that we might have after we read verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. How did God do this? And that is the question that chapter 2 seeks to answer. How did God make humanity? How did he make the male and the female? How did he make the man and the woman? In other words, the creation account that we get in Genesis chapter 2 is an, is an expansion, really, of what happened on day 6. It's as though the author, Moses, has given us a, a full account of creation, Six days of work followed by one day of rest. And now he wants to say, let's zoom in on day six, particularly that portion of day six devoted to the creation of human beings. Zooming in to how God made his image bearers. That is essentially what chapter 2 is. That's the role of chapter 2. Not, as some liberal scholars have said, that what we have here are two creation accounts just sort of redacted together or mashed together throughout the history of ancient Israel, one by one author at a particular period of time, another by another author at a particular period of time. But what we have is a very careful, carefully constructed Narrative where the author is showing us in detail what happened in this portion of the creation week. So two weeks ago, we looked at the origin of man, that he was formed from the dust, that he was a special direct creation of God, and we saw the intimacy of that creation of man, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a a living creature So we saw that a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the man in his home. So God makes the man, and we see the intimacy there. And then God takes the man and puts him in his paradise home, in a garden planted especially, of all the beauty of creation, a garden planted especially for this one man. We saw there that he was rested in a lavishly prepared garden with responsibility and a command to obey. So he was given a very clear relationship with his maker. God gave him all these things and said, don't do this one thing. And and we talked about last week how God doesn't just give him a prohibition, but God gives him a prohibition that, that is enveloped by permission and provision, that God tells him, you can eat of every tree. It's all for you, Adam. But one tree, you must not eat of it. In other words, God was saying to Adam, enjoy me and enjoy my creation, but you must submit to my authority, for I am your maker. You are not an autonomous being. You are dependent upon me. 
You are submissive and subject to me. So that's what we looked at last week. And today we are going to consider the man with his wife. And what we have today, what we'll be looking at today, really is the foundation in all of the Bible for this wonderful thing called marriage. That many of us here this morning have experienced and are experiencing this wonderful thing called marriage really goes back to what we see here at the very beginning of the Bible, this most fundamental of all human relationships back here. In fact, the first human relationship, marriage. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's holy word. So we'll be reading Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, or built, literally built into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father... And his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You can be seated. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Ask him for his graces, his wisdom, as we study his word together. And that this would not just be, I hope for you, this is not just another time at church. But this really is a time to come and sit underneath the word of God and to say, God, change me. I need you. I don't want to be the same this afternoon that I was when I came here this morning. I want to grow. I want to be like your son. Is that your desire this morning? Are we just playing church? I hope not. I hope that we want to change. I hope that we want to image the glorious Savior who redeemed us with his own blood. Let's pray. <coughs> Our Father, thank you for your word. You have been so good to us in our natural lives. You have given us health. And even for those who are sick this morning, we still see the ways that you have given us health. You've given us life. You've given us strength and energy to get up and come here today. You've given us money to provide for ourselves. You've given us food to eat and family members and friends. And you've given us this place to come and meet in on Sunday mornings. 
Father, you have given us so many things for which we thank you, God. We praise you for your many gifts as our creator. But Father, even more, you have given us your very self in your son. You have given us his life. You have given us his love. You have given us his obedience imputed to our account. You have given us hope of everlasting life in perfect bliss. Father, you have given us pardon from all of our sins. And you have given us this morning your precious word. Oh God, how the world tramples upon your word and hates it. How the world has no place for some ancient collection of fairy tales as they see it. But God, we see here the very inbreathing of the living God. We are grateful, Father, that you give us your precious word. We pray that we would see it, that we would see your glory in it, and that we would trust in it, not in our own rationality, not in our own selves or in our circumstances or in good times, but that we would trust in the rock of your word. Father, help us this morning to sit underneath it, to believe it, Help us to grow by it, we ask. Thank you for this time together. We pray it will be useful to us all. We pray that your spirit would work among us. We believe, God, that you are here even now, that angels are here even now. God, be with us as we engage this morning with your word and worship you and praise and participate in the Lord's Supper and speak words of gospel truth into each other's lives. Father, be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we need to notice four things. The title of the sermon, as I said, is The Man with His Wife. And there are four things for us to consider this morning. First, the intention of God. Second, the realization of man. Third, the construction of woman. And then finally, the foundation of Marriage. So let's start with the intention of God. Look again at verse 18, where this passage starts. <clears throat> verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Throughout these opening chapters of Genesis, there has been one recurring theme. There are many things that we have seen, many things we have learned, and in fact, there have been many recurring elements, but one recurring theme really stands out, and that is the generosity, the kindness, and the care of God. This is presented to us at the very beginning. The nature of God, the God as he revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself to his people throughout history. He's a God abounding in love. He's a God who forgives sin. He's, he's kind. He's rich in mercy. He's patient. This is a, a good God. It is, it is a giving God, a kind God. God is presented here as a loving father. And in fact, it's very interesting that when Luke traces Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3, he's going back all the way to Adam, and he ends that account, he ends that genealogy in this way. Goes down all the way to Seth, and he says, the son of Seth, mentioning Seth's son, then the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We are meant to see in Eden a, 
a relationship, a father-son relationship between God and Adam. And in fact, when we, look, when we see Jesus burst on the scene in the first century, we're seeing Jesus as the son of God, which has so many connotations. Jesus is the son of God. He's the eternal begotten one. As the early church fathers would say, he's the eternally begotten son of the father, the perfect image of God from eternity past with no beginning. He's the eternal son of the father. He's also the son as we see here, in the sense that he is the second Adam. Adam is the, the son of God in the garden, and Christ is the son of God as he is the second Adam, the new man. And we see also that Jesus is the king. In the Psalms, Psalm 2 in particular, the king of Israel is given the, the reference, the son of God. He's, he's referred to in that way, and we see Jesus. He's the king. He's the Christos. He's the anointed one. And so in that respect, he is also the son of God. But what we see here in Genesis 2 is the loving care of a father. Last week, we saw the abundant provision of this loving father. We saw that in the garden home, God gave man pleasure. He gave man pleasure and pleasurable things, pleasing things for him to enjoy. God delights in our enjoyment. God is not some sort of mean, cruel taskmaster you, you saw in the early church that there were groups of people who believed that, that good and right religion was basically making yourself as miserable as you could be in your body. That's not the way of Christianity. That's not the way of the people of God. What we see here is that God delights in our delight. He delights in our pleasure of all kinds of things, whether it be chocolate or friendship or a beautiful sunny day. God delights in all that he has made and he delights in human delight. So he gives man pleasure. He gives man immortality with the tree of life. He gave man a strong and unending source of water to water the garden, both to water man and to water the trees that would give rise to fruit for him to eat. And most importantly, God gave Adam his very presence. We see allusions to that throughout Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. But God makes his home there with man. Man is in the presence of God. This is perfect delight in the Lord. That Adam at any moment can call out to his father, to his God, to his creator, and enjoy his presence. And so one of the things we need to notice here is that in Genesis 2, we are being prepared to see how awful the sin of Genesis 3 really is. When you get to Genesis 3 and you see Satan tempt Eve and you see Eve give in to that temptation and Adam follow her in it, if you just read that narrative in and of itself, it might seem even perhaps trivial or a bit silly. Like what in the world is going on here? But when you read it in the context of Genesis 2, you begin to see the gravity of it the weightiness of it, the seriousness of it, that when Adam and Eve disobey God in this way, they are disobeying the one who has provided for them so lavishly, who has given them everything they could possibly need and enjoy. And so the sin of Genesis 3 becomes that much more atrocious when we see it in this light. And this is exactly, by the way, how God works throughout the Bible. We see that the Israelites are given what? Freedom from bondage in Egypt. 
God takes them out of bondage into the wilderness and there he feeds them. He gives them water, water from a rock, manna from heaven every morning for them to just pick up and eat. He gives them all kinds of blessings there in the garden. And I think that is, I mean, not in the garden, but in the wilderness and and later in the promised land. But that is meant to communicate to the Israelites that look at what God has done for you and look at your sin and how much more for us today. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, those of us who've been inhabited by the living God, by the Holy Spirit, that we belong to God. He has purchased us. Christ purchased us with his own blood. How much more atrocious and awful and terrible is our disobedience against this God who not only has lavished us as he did Adam with all these good things, who not only has pulled us out of bondage physically as he did the Israelites, but who has made us partakers of his divine nature, who has indwelt us with his spirit, and for whom Christ died. We are meant to see in this how awful sin really is. The world does not understand that. The world does not understand judgment and hell because they don't understand the gravity of their own sin, which is why they do it so freely. We as Christians do because we understand that our sin was placed, heaped on Christ. We do not take sin lightly. One of the marks of a Christian is that you do not take sin lightly. One of the ways you can know if you are a false convert is if sin is not a big deal to you. That will be the first sign that you do not hate what God hates and therefore you love what God does not love and that you do not belong to him. But now, in our passage for today, we see once again God's good and kind intentions. All this lavishing upon man, we see it now once again in our passage. A solitary man is not God's complete work. That's not the end for man. It is not his plan. Remember in Genesis 1, we get to the end of day 6, and what does it say? Very good. And God saw what he had made, and behold, it was very good. Well, we're not at very good yet, because at the very beginning of this passage, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good. So we haven't quite reached that very good point. God's plan is companionship. God's plan is human beings in relationship, male and female reproducing to fill the earth and subdue it. And so in having dominion, in reproducing and working and keeping the garden and worshiping and obeying God, man needs a helper. As we see here, he needs a helper, a partner, a support who corresponds to him, who is like him. So what are the implications of this for us? Just as we reflect on verse 18, we see the intention of God for companionship for man. What are some of the implications for us today? I think one of them is a fairly general implication, and it's this. Isolation is not the ideal for human existence. One of the things that is interesting to me is, from a pastor's vantage point, one of the things that you often see When people begin to sort of drift away from the Lord or they go through a difficult time that causes them to question or doubt and they begin to struggle, one of the things that almost always happens is they begin to drift towards isolation. 
They begin to drift away from other human beings. And particularly, they begin to drift away from the church, from the people of God. This is satanic. This is, this is a satanic scheme, as Paul talks about in Ephesians, the schemes, the wiles of the devil. This is one of the purposes of Satan is that he might isolate us because in ourselves we are without support. We're without assistance. We're without help. We're alone. This is one of the things that you see often. So when you begin to sense that happening in your own life, when you begin to sense yourself folding in upon yourself, being quite like a hermit, being alone by yourself without other people, without care for other people, without care for relationship with other people, know that there is one who is behind that. The enemy is behind that. And on top of that, it's just not wise. As Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12 says, this is Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12, says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. This is just wisdom. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Let me say this. uh, We've been watching a show where uh, these people are out in Alaska and they're just all by themselves hunting caribou and various things. And uh, one of these guys in particular lives out so remotely that when he gets dropped in, he has to, and there's a number of miles, I don't remember exactly how many, but the number of miles he has to walk just to get to his little shack. And I've often wondered, I mean, he gets up on this, these poles and puts meat up on those poles. And I've often wondered at any point, at any point, this guy could fall and break a leg and the wolves are gonna come and eat him. I mean, at any point, this guy could, could, could hurt himself irreparably, he could hurt himself in such a way that he becomes incapacitated. He's all alone. He has no help. Hopefully it never happens to him. His name's Glenn. <laughs> but, but if, if it does, I mean, what's good? He's no help, no support, no fellow to lift him up, as Ecclesiastes says. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Woe to him. Again, if two lie together, they they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That reminds me of David at the end of his life. He's so cold, he's so old and frail, and he needs someone to to, to lie with him so that he can stay warm. Incredible picture of human frailty. But it says here, how will he stay warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Just an illustration of the fact that we need each other. We need people from our own nuclear families to our extended families to our church family to friends and acquaintances to colleagues of all sorts. We need other human beings. And and that truth, that truth begins here. As we've said many times, so many of these foundational truths of life are right here. In Genesis 1 to 3, we also, so that's a general implication. We have a specific implication for women in particular, and I think Calvin captures this well. Women being instructed in their duty of helping their husbands should study to keep this divinely appointed order. When I read that, it made me think of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 gives us a picture of the excellent wife. And when we, took a, when we did a series 
on Ephesians 5:22 all the way to 6:4 which was uh, Walt read a large portion of that earlier when we did a series on that we looked at Proverbs 31 in a little bit of detail we were talking about wives but I want to share at least two chunks of that with you so the first is Proverbs 31 verses 11 to 12 and this is what it says about the excellent wife <clears throat> the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And then later in verses 27 to 28, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. So here we have, I think, going all the way back to Genesis 2, we have this implication for the woman as the one who is created as a helper for her husband, as we find here with the language, a helper suitable for him. So we see the intention of God to remedy man's isolation. Secondly, we come to the realization of man. Look at verses 19 to 20. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, <coughs> and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So here we see man engaging in the kind of work for which God made him. What is he to do? We learn in Genesis 1, he, has to have, he is to have dominion over the creatures. And part of his headship over creation is to give, we see here, specific names to the various kinds of creatures. I heard someone say, well, uh, I've, I've heard people discuss, well, it must, you, really, you can't have 24-hour days because imagine how long it would have taken Adam to name all of these creatures. I mean, certainly that would, that would uh, have taken a very long time for him to do that. Well, we don't know it would have taken a very long time. And so what if he, what if he did 10 or 20 in, in a minute? What if he was able, they were marching by him, he was able to see their characteristics and name them with his, with his power of reason that God had given him, his, his intellect that God had given him. We don't know how many kinds of animals there were. We don't know if there was just sort of one cat or if there were numerous cats or how many different kinds of bears there were in the garden. So I don't think you can extract from this little detail that the days of creation have to be ages of time because certainly it would have taken at least a month, or at least six months, or at least a decade, whatever, for him to name all of these animals. I don't think that is necessitated. That conclusion is not necessitated by what we find here. But we see him giving names to these various kinds of Creatures, but God's intention for this naming of the creatures has a far greater purpose than just naming them. Namely, that man would realize his need. That's the big reason why Adam is naming all of these creatures in this particular setting, in this particular time, is so that he would see his need. Remember this man is a thinking creature, he's intelligent, he's rational. He's wise. And the height of his ability to reason, as I said a moment ago, cannot really be perceived by us. This is, this is pre-fall human being. 
This is the first man created gloriously in God's image and not marred by sin. Sin affects the the reason, it affects the will, it affects the affections and the body, it affects every part of man. Adam is here in all of his intelligence and rationality and wisdom, he is here untainted by sin. And so, with his intelligence, he observes the characteristics of creatures and gives them a name in line with their features. We don't know what the original language was in Eden, but we know that God implanted within Adam language the ability to to speak and to call things what they are. And we don't know the relationship that that ancient, most ancient of languages has to all the other languages of the earth, whether that was some sort of proto-Hebrew, some sort of early version of Hebrew or Semitic language that then gave rise later to Hebrew, we don't know. But what we know here is that he gives them specific names by means of his mind. With his intelligence, he observes that the creatures come in pairs. They're not just these isolated things, but they, they come in pairs, male and female. With his intelligence, he observes that none of these creatures is like him. Not a single one. None of them corresponds to him. None can think like him. Relate to God like him, work with him, talk with him, or reproduce with him. None of them correspond to him. So God has given man an up-close and personal realization of two main things as we read these verses, this realization of man. God has given an experiential realization to man of these two main things. First, that he is unique. Very, much, very clear in his mind at this point. I am different. I am distinct. I am unique. And the second realization that God has given him is that he is lacking, especially as he sees these pairs of animals coming through. He realizes, hmm, I don't have one of those. I don't match with any of these, and I don't have one of those. I don't have a, a, a mate. I don't have a companion. We know that man comes to this realization because of his response. By the way, these verses don't say that man realizes this, but we know that he does because a little bit later in the narrative in verse 23, what does Adam say when God brings Eve to him? The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last. This is a celebration of the sort that recognizes that it's been, a, it's, it's been a little bit of a time and he's not found anything. And now he wakes from his sleep at last, this one. And he's quite excited, as all of us are, I suppose, when we get married, hopefully. But he is at last, at last. So we know that this is a realization of his. So what is God doing here? What is God doing in this passage? And what are the implications for us as we sit here this morning? Well, God is preparing man, and catch this, husbands. God is preparing man to understand the immense value of the woman when she is created. You see, God could have made Eve without all of this. He could have made the woman kind of quickly at the beginning, maybe right after or Without all of this fuss, without all all of this realization, 
of the man, but he did not do it that way. Because in the creation of woman, there is a crescendo for the man. There's anticipation, expectation, and therefore value in her. He sees her for the glorious gift that she is from the Lord. Which tells us that even at this early stage, God wants man to understand this truth from Proverbs 18.22. It says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That is a truth that God wanted to impress very much upon Adam's mind. She is a good thing for you. This is favor from me towards you, Adam. And so we get the anticipation and we get this realization before God makes the woman. So why is this so important? As I said, gratitude towards God. And I think more importantly, loving care towards his wife. See, catch this. If Adam realizes the immense value of his wife, he will be more inclined to treat her with the loving compassion and care that is due her as a great gift from God. Husband, the reason that we treat our wives with disrespect and a lack of sympathy and domineering attitude or passivity is because we do not recognize the great gift they are from the Lord. We don't see them as God sees them. We take them for granted. We do not hear the words of Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Brother, how do you see your wife? Do you see your wife like Adam saw his when she came there with the Lord God bringing her to him? Is that how you see your wife? Maybe we all just need to just repent. Just repent of the way we treat our wives. Go home today and tell the Lord, Genesis 2 has held me accountable, God. The first marriage has shown me freshly what marriage is. God, forgive me for failing to see my wife as the tremendous treasure that she is from you. And then to really repent. And that means do differently than we have up to this Point. Another consideration for us, once again, we see the incompatibility of evolution with the biblical account. There really is no wedding together of contemporary understanding of evolution as it is portrayed relating to human beings. There really is no compatibility here. There is a choice to be made. Man is distinct here from every creature. There is no place here for some kind of pre-human, ape-like creature that's sort of like Adam, but not really. Instead, what we have here are livestock, birds, beasts of the field, and then Adam. Very different. Sharp distinction. Sharp contrast. So we have the incompatibility here of human evolution. That humans evolved from primates. This is incompatible with God's revelation of human origins. So what does God do to remedy this situation of solitude for man? That leads us to the third point up here, the construction of woman. So let's look there, verses 21 to 23. Verses 21 to 23. 
the construction of woman. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Isn't that beautiful? Brought her to the man. How good is the Lord? Then the the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here, God is portrayed as a surgeon and a builder and a giver of wonderful things. Without pain or suffering on Adam's part, there's no pain here. God puts him into a very deep sleep. Very deep sleep. No anesthesiologist is going to put a person into the kind of sleep that that Adam was put into here. This is really deep sleep. He can't feel it. He doesn't experience it. It's without pain or suffering. And God surgically takes a part of his side, some bone with flesh on it, it seems, And he uses this as the raw material for constructing the woman. This is incredible. Just as man was made from dust, woman is made from a rib of the man. Yes, I believe this really happened. Yes, as Christians, we ought to believe that this really happened and in this way. And then... Once again, as a loving father, God brings her to the man. He presents his greatest gift, a companion for life, one like him. I can't even begin to imagine what Adam experienced in that moment. The level of delight and excitement and celebration at having her brought to him by his maker. So I want to ask you, husbands, do you remember when God presented you with your gift? Do you remember that? We should. Every day we wake up, it is as though God presents this gift to us again. Every day realizing that she is a gift from him. Genesis 2 casts a massive shadow over every marriage. And the celebration of Adam should cast a massive shadow over every portion of our marital sin, husbands, for treating our wives as we do and neglecting them. Here we have the truth about the relationship between us and our wives. What's the man's response? It's a poem of celebration. And men, of course, have been writing love songs, love notes, and poems to their wives ever since. It's the first one. Right here in Genesis 2, the first humans, this beautiful love song to his precious wife. She is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. The language of kinship is what we have here, and we find this throughout the Bible. This, This is language of the most, the closest of relationships. And to further illustrate this close relationship, the man in Hebrew, Ish, names her Isha, Isha. This is 
meant to convey to us the, the tightness of this relationship between the man and his wife. So what do we make of this creation of woman? What does it tell us? A number of commentators, and I love these, these quotes here, a number of commentators have insightfully reflected on the manner in which woman was made. And these are two of the quotes that I think are particularly fitting and striking. One of them is by Matthew Henry, the well-known Puritan Bible commentator. And this is what he says. You've probably heard this before, by the way. Maybe on Mother's Day or, I don't know, some other time. Not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that incredible? That's the creation of woman, not taken from his big toe, right? And not taken from his ear, taken from his side, and probably, yes, this side, closest to his heart, Another commentator says, just as the rib is found at the side of the man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at his side to be his helper, counterpart, and her soul is bound up with his. This is the image that we get from Genesis 2. Oh, how this text prepares us for marriage. Wives submitting to their husbands as head or leader of the home. Adam was created first. Paul will reflect on this in 1 Timothy 2.13 and 1 Corinthians 11, 8 to 9. Adam, of course, named his wife. There's that sense there of, of headship or leadership. He, he names his wife. Adam, of course, is the one who receives the command from the Lord. And he is to convey that to his wife. Ultimately, Adam is responsible for what goes on in that garden. He's the head of that home. And we see that when the sin occurs in Genesis chapter 3, who does, to whom does God speak? He speaks to Adam, not to Eve. He comes to the head. He comes to the leader. And that's exactly what the Lord God will do when we stand before him one day. Men, husbands, fathers, we're the ones who are responsible for our homes and here we have here wives, a, a call to wives to submit to that leadership, that headship of their husbands. As we looked at in Ephesians 5 when we talked about that a while ago. And then of course husbands with care and compassion extending self-giving love to their wives. And so we see these, these passages, Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. First Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This passage prepares us today for marriage, but it also prepares us for marriage in the text itself, because all of this is leading to what we find in verse 24. So that brings us to our last point for this morning, and that is the foundation of marriage. So we've looked at the intention of God, the realization of man, the construction of woman, and now finally we come to the foundation of marriage. Look at verses 24 to 25 as we finish up today. Verses 24 to 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. In this passage of Genesis 2, 
we really are looking at ground zero for the Bible's teaching on marriage. In fact, anywhere you go in the Bible, whether it's the wisdom material that you find in Proverbs or the celebratory Psalms or it's Paul's teaching on family life that we find in various epistles or Peter's teaching on family life that we find or Jesus' teaching as we read in the Gospels, wherever we are to go in all of Scripture, even in the, in the narratives later in Genesis, which we'd see not living up to the ideal that we find here in these early chapters, but everywhere you go in the Bible, all of it comes back here, which tells us that for our marriages, this is like filet mignon. This is, this is the best cut of meat for us as we go back and consider what are God's intentions for our home life? What are God's intentions for how we treat one another in the union of marriage? It all goes back to here. Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew 19, 5 to refute divorce. Jesus says, essentially, one flesh, that's the relationship between the husband and his wife. They are now one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Even though the culture takes divorce lightly, Christians never should, never should. The Bible is very clear on divorce. And we give, Jesus gives us, of course, the exception in the case of infidelity, marital infidelity, fornication, in the confines of, of marriage. But Jesus will go back to this text and say, on the basis of what we read in Genesis 2, divorce is not lawful. Divorce is not God's will. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking about divorcing your spouse. It is the Christian who submits to the word of God and trusts him for grace. Are you not trusting God for grace for your marriage? Are you just ready to do as the world who do not know God? Or will we submit to him, trust his provision, that he will provide good things for our marriages, that he'll heal our marriages no matter how broken? Or will we just be as the world and disobey our master? Jesus brings it back to this passage. Paul quotes this passage, as we've just seen in Ephesians 5, to instruct husbands and wives on how to think about their union. Husbands and wives, the relationship that they are to have, as Paul unpacks it there in Ephesians 5, ultimately goes all the way back here to Genesis 2. So what can we say this morning about this one flesh union? Well, let's just kind of look very closely at what we have here. It involves one man and one woman. So immediately that, that takes polygamy and that takes homosexual union and puts them over against contrary to God's purposes. This is an easy one. This is not a difficult one, regardless of how difficult the culture may make it for us. This is an easy one from the biblical perspective. Polygamy and homosexual union are contrary to the will of God. You don't need Paul's comments in Romans 1 to prove that, or homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6, or the laws in Leviticus 
It all goes back here. This is God's plan. This is God's way, the creator, the one to whom we must give account. Every person must give account. It involves a new relationship that is prioritized above all others. A husband is to leave his father and his mother. Maybe we have trouble doing that. Maybe we have trouble. In-law problems? In-law problems ultimately stem from failure to obey this. I mean, maybe not always, but frequently. We must realize that the relationship between a husband and a wife trumps all other relationships. It's the essential relationship. It's more important than your relationship with your kids. If your kids come between you and your wife, that's wrong. Or you and your husband, that's wrong. Your parents come between you and your spouse. It's destructive and contrary to God's will. We see all of this here. We don't need to go and read a bunch of books about this. It's right here. Leave his husband and his wife. I mean, his mother and his father cling to his wife. It involves an official covenant for life. This language of holding fast, clinging, sticking together for life. This leaving and holding fast is the language of covenant in the Hebrew Bible. Leaving and cleaving or clinging, holding fast. Literally, it, the idea is sticking. They stick together, bound up, body and soul, together until death. And finally, this is a union free of guilt, shame, and discord. They were naked and unashamed. Now, we'll talk more about that when we get into Genesis 3, because we'll see that after they sin, God clothes them. They know they're naked. They hide from the Lord. They start blaming each other. It's terrible what happens right after sin enters the world. But what we see here is that there is freedom from any of that, freedom from any kind of, of judgment, guilt, shame, or argument. None of that is present here in this perfect paradise before the fall. And as we finish up this morning, I want to end with the reflections of the Apostle Paul on this very verse, verse 24 in Ephesians 5. Because here's where the verse we're reading, it, we can take it all the way from, from Genesis 2 to our home, right? We can take it to our living room. We can take it to our kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, everywhere. But here's where it goes even further. We take it into all eternity because Paul says this, after quoting verse 24, he says this in Ephesians 5, 32, this mystery, he quotes verse 24 from Genesis 2, and then he says this, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You know what that tells us? Even in the way God made man and woman and brought them together, and by the way, this tells us that a, a literal interpretation of Genesis 2 is, in fact, connected to the gospel. Think about that. We, we will have a tendency to think, oh, that's unimportant. It's really, it's really about Jesus, loving Jesus, and so forth. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2 because we are told by Paul that what happens in Genesis 2 and the specific way in which it happens is meant to point to the truth, the reality of Christ and his church. Just as Christ literally came from the Father, to the earth, incarnate deity, and died for sinners, and bound himself up with his people, with his church, who is his body, and inhabits them with his spirit, just as this has in fact happened, so too 
Did Genesis 2 happen the way we read it? Christ and his church. The husband submits to her, I mean, the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And the husband self-givingly loves his wife just as Christ loved the church. So the gospel shines in Genesis 2. And hear this, people of God. The gospel shines in your marriage. And here's the question. How brightly, how brightly, this is an evangelistic issue. This is an issue of of life or death. How brightly does the gospel shine for your children who see you fighting, who see you disrespecting one another, raising our voices towards one another, dismissing one another, selfishly pursuing our own ends at the expense of the other. How many times do our children see that? And how many times do they see? How many times do people we know see a dim gospel, not a bright picture of Christ and his church? Christians, this is what we are called to even today in our homes. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to give us your word. We are not left without direction. Father, we are given so clearly in your Bible so much to consider. Father, would we be obedient servants of our King? Would you forgive us for our slothfulness, inattentiveness, God? Would you have mercy on us as we know you do, God? Not a single one of us is where we need to be in our marriages. So, Father, we pray your graces on the marriages of Four Corners Church. And, Father, beyond that, the marriages represented here in general. God, we pray that the gospel would shine brightly through our marriages. Father, help us. We are a sinful people. We are a self-word people. Father, help us to be God-word people, biblical people, loving people, as we are conformed more and more into the image of your Son. And we anticipate the day, Father, when we will be before you in perfect sinlessness. What a day, Father. Thank you for the great picture that marriage is, that this will in fact come, that one day the bridegroom, the the groom, the husband will come for his precious bride. Us, Father, thank you. And he will grab us to himself and bring us to be where he is forever. Thank you for this glorious truth, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.